only 99 cents, and I found the new Al Gore book. Same planning, sensible tomorrow. Yeah, I hope it's as exciting as his other book, Rational Thinking, Reasonable Future. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about one of my favorite things, books and reading. In fact, back in the day when Ian and I started our business, I'm pretty sure after our domain name, our first set of expenses were on books because I felt that we needed to educate ourselves in how to run a business. And so the first stop was the bookshop. So to talk about books, I called up one of the regular guests on this show, Taylor Pearson from taylorpearson.me and the author of The End of Jobs. We're going to talk about some of the best books we've read in the past year, some books we've reread, and also some of our favorite blogs. So if you're looking for some great reading material, this is the episode for you. I know there's a lot of bookworms out there in the audience. So let's just jump into it. If you love reading as much as we do, you can check out the book titles and the links to everything mentioned in this episode at tropicalmba.com slash great books. Because you know I'm all about those books, about those books, start reading. I'm all about those books, about those books, start reading. I'm all about those books, about those books, start reading. I'm all about those books, about those books. All right. I think you should start as the guest, as the inspiration. Let's hear about your first book. So I'm going to start with The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly. This one did just come out this year. And I originally found Kevin Kelly through a book you recommended to me, which is his 2006 book, What Technology Wants. And he's probably most well known for his article, A Thousand True Fans, which gets passed around and quoted a lot. And he actually wrote a book in 1999, somewhat similar to this book called New Rules for the New Economy. And if you go back and read it, it's like creepy how good the predictions are in terms of the direction technology is going to move. And so he basically gives everyone a redo of like, hey, I'm going to call the next 15 or 20 years again. And if you just pay me 20 bucks and read this 300 page book, you get to know everything that's going to happen for the next 20 years. And so he maps out what he sees as the kind of 12 inevitable trends, that there's variation within these trends, but that these are the major trends. And the punchline for me, I'll read a quick excerpt here. Right now, today in 2016 is the best time to start up. There has never been a better day in the whole history of the world to invent something. There has never been a better time with more opportunities, more openings, lower barriers, higher benefit risk ratios, better returns, or greater upside than right now, this minute. For those of us that are super Kevin Kelly fans, is it worth reading this book? I liked what technology wants better than I liked this book. It's a little more like big picture philosophical, what is technology? And this one's a little bit more like, here's how AR is going to play out. You know, here's how AI is going to play out. Here's what Bitcoin I think is going to do over the next decade. Let me just jump in to clarify these two acronyms because we'll use them a few times. So AR is augmented reality, which is any technology that's going to overlay data or visualizations or otherwise augment your everyday experience. And AI is artificial intelligence, which is, of course, the inspiration for many good Hollywood movies. 
it's worth putting that into context too, because what technology wants is a great book. Amazing book. What are some things that he says that surprised you? The big aha moment was he says something to the extent of, you know, if you want to know the recipe for the next 10,000 startups, take X and add AI. And he sort of does this analogy comparing startups today to like electrification in the early 20th century. You could list 10,000 companies started in the 20th century where they just took something previously and added electricity to it. Like, you know, (laughs) candle becomes light bulb, wood burning furnace becomes stove, right? You just like take all these industries and add electricity. And we're just going to do the same thing with AI now, just all these different things, you just add AI to them. Very cool. Okay, so my first book is one that was featured on this program called How Not to Die by Dr. Greger, and I'm going to play an excerpt from my interview with him. I think the best available balance of evidence suggests that the healthiest diet is one that minimizes the intake of meat, eggs, dairy, and processed junk and maximizes the intake of fruits, vegetables, legumes, or beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, whole grains, nuts and seeds, mushrooms, herbs, and spices, basically real food that grows out of the ground. Now, Taylor, I got a lot of interesting feedback from this interview. Everything from people pulling me aside at our events to have long, in-depth conversations about why Dr. Greger is wrong or bad for extreme athletes. <laughs> and I also got people that emailed me and told me that that interview changed their and their families' lives. And the reason I think this book is important is because it makes eating really healthily simple. I don't know, at least for me, in the past, I always thought it would be such a slog or I'd just be chewing down salads all day long. And Dr. Gregor really comes to and says, look, look, there's all these things that we know are contributing to cancer, contributing to heart disease, contributing to our number one causes of death. But we basically keep eating them for cultural reasons and for simplicity's sake. Like these are the foods that are in the supermarket. These are the foods that are at the restaurant. And this book really helps pave a path of resistance. It doesn't make being healthy a big parade of salads. You know what I mean? I really appreciate that. And I also appreciate a little bit of this pushback against what I think a lot in our generation people have latched onto the paleo diet. And it's like, yeah, like a stack of green beans and a big fat steak with butter on top is all of a sudden de rigueur and eating healthy in my generation. I don't know how that happened, you know? But I think that there's at least some compelling reasons from science and certainly in the way that I feel that that diet doesn't work for me. And a lot of what Dr. Greg has put forward does. And I think from a business perspective, if you want to make investments in the next 10 years, I don't think you could go wrong with investing in plant-based, a plant-based diet. And I'm not saying be a vegetarian or be a vegan or any of those, like I'm allergic to those terms, you know, but I love this idea of building a diet around healthy, sustainable foods. Whenever I read a diet book, it always reminds me of how credulous I am. Like every three years I read a new diet book and I'm like, this is it. This is the answer. And this time I finally figured it out. And for me, I'm the same way. But what I really enjoy is the roadmaps, like the ways in which the habits you can have or the heuristics, the frameworks you can adopt to help you make decisions on a day-to-day basis. So there's a great author called Michael Poulan who wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma. And this book is outstanding. Have you read it? Terrific book. Yeah, I have. 
It's a terrific book. And this isn't a diet book. This is a book where he tells the history of food in America and how it's become what it is. Why you walk into the grocery store and it's like 30% more calcium. And they're like, what does that mean? You know, He tells that story in a very compelling way. And he recently came out with a book called Food Rules. And these are like little tricks that you can have in the back of your mind. Like one of the ones that's jumped out at me is if you're not hungry enough to eat an apple, you're not hungry. Instantly that like resonated with me because I was like, well, I'll eat pretzels all the time when I'm not hungry. (laughs) But if it was just an apple sitting there, I'd be like, I'm good. Your next book, sir. Just Kids by Patty Smith. I don't know if it's a resolution, but it's trying to read a few less business books this year, a few more of the other genres. And so this is a sort of coming of age story. Patty Smith, the author, moved to New York in the late 60s from New Jersey, where she grew up. And she met this guy named Robert Maplethorpe, who went on to be a pretty well-known photographer. Most controversially, he did like a lot of photography of the underground BDSM scene in New York. But he died in the 80s when AIDS was kind of starting to hit the gay community in New York. And on his deathbed, asked her to write this book of their time kind of coming up as artists in New York. And it's really beautifully done. Like, I'm a pretty soulless human being when it comes, like, not that, I don't tear up in movies, whatever. And even in this book, I, like, teared up a couple times. I was like, wow, this is really kind of a poignant thing that gets you, like, a lot of existential questions in a thoughtful and touching way. So my excerpt from this, she's talking about one of their times together. I'm certain as we file down the great staircase that I appeared the same as ever, a moping 12 years old, all arms and legs. But secretly, I knew I had been transformed, moved by the revelation that human beings create art, that to be an artist was to see what others could not. Speaking of soul, I'm reading Tom Petty's new biography. Oh, yeah? It's really good. Yeah. I recommend it 100%. Just didn't make my list. Yeah, I got a few of those too. So my next book is an autobiography by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, and it's called Shoe Dog. And I'm going to play a clip of Phil so you can get a sense for his voice. It's a true, as far as a business lesson, that uh, there's really never even just one person or even two people. That it takes a, it takes a group of people to uh, to build something. And uh, we had a unique group. They were eccentric. I, mm-hmm. I've often said, I don't know if they were geniuses or near genius, but they brought all the emotional baggage of genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this book was... I don't know why I bought it. <laughs> I, I was curious too. This came on the list and I was like, really? You bought that? I'm, it's interesting. I guess it's like one of the big releases of the year, you know? The marketing was great. I guess there you go. It got me. Like I was retargeted around the internet or whatever. And I bought this book and I was like sucked in immediately. It reminded me a little bit of, do you remember the book Catching Twitter? I do. I never read it. I remember it coming out. There's another book about the Masters of Doom, the guys who started the Doom video game series and the Wolfenstein video game series. That Those two books I really remember because they really brought you into this sense for starting a company, like for being at the beginning of something. And the Nike story is extremely fascinating. Really resonated with me, actually, as a former owner of a manufacturing company, like his trips to Japan, the moments of negotiation across the table from the trading company, the blatant and treacherous underhanded business moves made on all sides, the half-truths exchanged, and the cash flow constraints and the struggle, decade-long struggle to just get to a basic level of cash flow and profitability made for a really compelling read. Anything surprising, like you wouldn't have expected knowing what you know about Phil Knight and Nike? 
There's a lot of great stories. There's a lot of stories of like, you know, you imagine like smoke in the room sitting at a low Japanese table with an adversary across the way and millions of dollars at stake. But I think the biggest thing that I walked away from this book thinking is he had severe cash flow problems many, many years into this business. We have that concept where we talk about, you know, you reach kind of liftoff and it took Nike a really long time to achieve liftoff. And I found that comforting because it does take a long time to get a business started. It wasn't some overnight success, that's for sure. So my third book is The House of Morgan by Ron Chernow. And Chernow is probably my favorite biographer. He is the author of the book Hamilton, which the popular Broadway play is based off of. Also the author of Titan, which is this epic biography of John Rockefeller and has another one on George Washington. Washington, A Life is one of my favorite books of all time. Amazing. But yeah, his research process is insane. It takes him like five to 10 years to write a book. And you can tell, he literally, he will go back. This book is about the Morgan banking dynasty. And you can tell he like read the original letters every Morgan from 1850 to 1980 wrote. It's insane. It's the best history of finance I've ever read. So it's just like telling the history of finance basically through the Morgan banking dynasty from finance moving from London to the US to the US kind of becoming a financialized company to the rise of, for example, like the reason Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers got big was mergers and acquisitions was considered this dirty little thing. And so it was left to the Jewish firms by all the good Protestant banking firms. And that was how Goldman and Lehman got big in the 80s. So really terrific. It gives you a sense of the real DNA of modern banking and modern finance. And really takes all these, like all these things you think of are these new, well, now the finance industry is corrupt and it's shady and there are these power brokers and yada, yada. It's like this is 150 years going back to England that the industry has worked this way. And it was astounding to me just how much power these guys had. There's a panic in 1907. Let me read a brief quote about this story. The head of the New York Stock Exchange is going to talk to JP Morgan. So, On Thursday, October 24, with stock trading virtually halted, New York Stock Exchange President Ransom H. Thomas crossed Broad Street and told Morgan that unless $25 million was raised immediately, at least 50 brokerage firms might fail. Thomas wanted to shut the exchange. At what time do you usually close it? Morgan asked. Though the stock exchange was 20 paces from his office, Pierpont didn't know its hours. Stock trading was vulgar. Why at 3 o'clock, said Thomas. Pierpont wagged an admonitory finger. It must not close one minute before that hour today. At two o'clock, Morgan summoned the bank presidents and warned that dozens of brokerage houses might fail unless they mustered $25 million within 10 or 12 minutes. By 2.16, the money was pledged. Morgan then dispatched a team of the stock exchange floor to announce that call money would be available at as low as 10%. One team member, Amory Hodges, had his waistcoat torn off in the violent tumult. Then a blessed moment occurred in Morgan Annals. As news of the rescue circulated through the exchange, Pierpont heard a mighty roar across the street. Looking up, he asked the cause. He was being given an ovation by the jubilant floor traders. And he goes on and talks about like, that you could make a real argument that in 1907, J.P. Morgan was more powerful than the president of the United States. But in terms of his actual influence over the country and over global finance, he was more powerful than anyone alive, which is crazy. I've probably read 20 finance books. And this gave me like a sense for banking and finance and a certain depth of understanding in a way that nothing else I've read has. It echoes a little bit of the more modern histories of Boomerang and The Big Short, which were two books I've read recently that I absolutely loved. 
All right, so my next book is in line with your last recommendation. It's called Snowball. It's by Alice Schroeder, and it's a biography of Warren Buffett. And I'll play a clip of Warren so we can get a sense for him. Cash is going to become worth less over time, but good businesses are going to become worth more over time. And you don't want to pay too much for them, so you have to have some discipline about about what you pay. Uh, but the thing to do is find a good business and stick with it. We've done a whole episode about this book and what we learned from it. So I'm just going to say that it's exciting. Warren Buffett isn't some boring grandfather from Omaha. His life story is thrilling, and I highly recommend The Snowball. My next book is Chaos by James Glick. And this was kind of a popular science book published originally in 1989. They've done like an updated version now. But it's right as what was known at the time, and I guess still is kind of this chaos theory, all these different fields in science started running into the same fundamental idea of chaos. So from physics to math to meteorology, they all started noticing these same patterns in their work. And it's amazingly well-written. Glick is a Pulitzer Prize winner. And so he does this really terrific job of taking an incredibly complex subject matter and really boiling it down in an understandable way and through these very relatable stories. And I got interested in it. If you've read any of Nassim Taleb's work or anything around complexity and that's interesting to you, I think this does a really good job of talking about those ideas in a related way. And so I'll read an excerpt here. No matter how elaborate linear mathematics could get with its Fourier transforms, its orthogonal functions, its regression techniques, may argue that it inevitably misled scientists about their overwhelmingly nonlinear world. The mathematical intuition so developed ill-equips the students to confront the bizarre behavior exhibited by the simplest of discrete nonlinear systems. Not only in research, but also in the everyday world of politics and economics, we would all be better off if more people realized that simple nonlinear systems did not necessarily possess simple dynamical properties. And he's getting at here, this big idea of the book is, if you think about everything you learned in school about math and physics and how the world works, and you kind of like imagine that on a pie chart, that's like this like one tiny slice of the pie it's like 2% of the pie that's linear functions. And there's this whole 98% that we don't even understand how it works. And yet it's something we deal with all the time, right? So economics, no one understands how this huge macroeconomic function works. And the ways we're trained to think about it are flawed in very deeply fundamental ways. And that's kind of what chaos theory is trying to resolve. All right, I got one more book on my list, Taylor. And this one is by David Benioff, and it's a novel. It's historical fiction, and it's called City of Thieves. Have you heard of this book? I have heard of it. I haven't read it. The brief historical context for this novel is the siege of Leningrad lasted for two and a half years, where basically the German army surrounded this city and basically just cut off the lifeline. A lot of historical novels like really focus on the history, but this one doesn't at all. It drops you in to these two young kids in the middle of this siege, and they basically get busted, and they get pulled up to the colonel of the local neighborhood or whatever. And this is an offense. Whatever they did, I won't reveal too much, but what they did is worth dying for, basically. I mean, people are getting killed for a lot less, but... The colonel or general, I can't remember exactly which, daughter is getting married in a week. And he needs eggs for 
the wedding cake. And there's no eggs because, you know, the Germans have cut off supply. And so these two young kids, you know, like a motley crew, you know, they get released. And it's like, if you get these eggs, you get to live. And the book follows this incredible journey. And you get to see so many aspects of so much of the misery, but also the hope and the challenge. And it's it's such a fascinating, fun story based in this horrible moment in history. You get exposed to these horrible things, but you walk away from the book with a smile on your face because it's kind of like a caper flick. You know what I mean? Like these two mismatched pair going out, interacting with all different sorts of characters. And I really, really loved this book. And I think it's worth mentioning, too, that I listened to it on Audible. And so the narration was really effective. I do a lot of my reading on Audible nowadays. I don't know if you should call it reading or what, Taylor. But if you are an Audible user and you do like audiobooks, The City of Thieves by David Benioff is hugely entertaining. It's a really exciting book. Let's talk about the books that you've reread. I think that's a great judge for the quality of a book. So what have you reread over the last six months? Two books for me, Sapiens by Noah Yuval Harari, which was my favorite book last year. And it's one of these big history books, if you're familiar with like Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, where it kind of retells this huge swath of human history from a different frame. So his premise is kind of all previous histories of Homo sapiens have been written by other Homo sapiens. And we're a very narcissistic, egotistical species. We think very highly of ourselves. And actually, we're not really that special. So it's like if you can imagine an alien writing a history of Homo sapiens that was just observing the evolution of Homo sapiens biologically and culturally, what would that look like? And I think it does a really good job. It really puts a dent. I think the way everyone is kind of classically educated is we see human history and biology and culture on this kind of like up constant up into the right slope, right? Like everything's getting better. Everyone's getting better. We're all getting happier. And he really just says, well, if you look at the history, like that's not quite what it looks like. Like it's a lot more up and down, back and forth. And so I think that worldview is really important to understand. I think he does a really good job of making it entertaining and fun and interesting. One of the things that I loved so much about this book is he really shined a light on the variety and depth of human-like organisms that have existed on the planet, many of whom were dominant and existent way longer than us. And so there's a whole story there that we haven't heard. And I thought that that was really fascinating. He brought that to life, like what their lives may or may not have been like, what they were thinking. And that to me was shocking, honestly. There's just all these kind of coincidences that just the right shift in climate happens at just the right times. And if it had gone the other way, you know, we would all be Neanderthals or Homo Dionysus or one of these other species. What's your other reread book? My other reread is Principles by Ray Dalio. And I reread this at least once a year, usually. It is actually just a PDF online. If you just Google Principles by Ray Dalio, you can download it. I think it's worth printing out. And Dalio is the founder of Bridgewater, which is a hedge fund based in Connecticut. And to my knowledge, I think it's the most profitable hedge fund in the last 25 years or something. Some incredible, unparalleled, profitable track record. And this is basically his internal culture document. So if he hires you to work at Bridgewater, this is what they hand you and you got to read it and learn how the company works. And he's basically open sourced it. And it's, you can read, there's only one section that I really reread. It's like the first 35 pages and it'll take you like four hours to read these 35 pages. They're just so dense. 
but worth printing out. I always make a ton of highlights and notes every time I go through it. All right, the two that I reread, the first is Anti-Fragile, one of my favorite books of all time now, something that we've discussed ad nauseum on this podcast. We've done episodes about it. You know, when I discuss this book with so many people that I'm friends with, they hate it. They despise it. They can't get through it. They think the author, Nassim Taleb, is the world's giantist idiot jerk. You know, I talk about the book so much that my confidence wavers after a few months. So I was like, I got to go back. I got to read it again for the third or fourth time. And I'm right back to 100%, man. It's still just as good as I remember it. I don't know. These people are crazy. My new thing is to advise people to skip ahead to the chapters on both ethics, so the concept of skin in the game ethics, and to the health chapters. His treatment of the medical industry, medical science is super fascinating, super relevant, very important. And, you know, his jerkiness need not get in the way of the quality of the ideas of this book. The second book that I've reread is called Shogun by James Clavell. So he was a prisoner in Singapore. And then he wrote this book about his experiences, a fictionalized tale of his experience in this prison during World War II. It's kind of like it's talked about in the book world, sort of like Shantaram. You know, Shantaram like brings you to India and shows you this country that you may not have ever experienced before through the eyes of an escaped prisoner, which is a pretty cool way to do it. What Shogun does is it brings you to feudal Japan, samurai Japan, like all the Japan that you dream of, you know, through the eyes of this English ship captain. And he arrived in Japan during the 1600s, during a incredibly tense political time period when the Jesuits were the only foreigners to be spoken of. And they controlled the trade, the very important silk and tea trade between China and Japan. And now all of a sudden, you got this English guy, and this is based on a true story, this English guy shipwrecks onto a threatened Daimyu's coastland, okay? So one of the guys fighting for political control of the entirety of Japan with a ship that's like 30 years advanced in technology than the ship the Jesuits are using to trade. The scene is set. What ensues is samurais, sword fights, ritual sacrifice, a love story. I mean, it's, it's good. Because you know I'm all about those books, about those books, start reading. I'm all about those books, about those books, start reading. I'm all about those books, about those books, start reading. I'm all about those books, about those books. All right, Taylor, we've probably mentioned what would amount to a year's worth of reading. But for those who are still sticking around, why don't we just pile on more? What the heck? I wanted to share with you briefly, I recently wrote an article called Long Live RSS. In terms of my reading routines, I love taking a walk with Audible books. I love reading my Kindle on flights. And I love first thing in the morning, opening up my RSS reader and seeing single author blogs that have updated their personal blogs, like people like you, with stories of you know what they're thinking about, what they're reading, what they're up to in their lives. So I just thought it would be cool if we shared a few of our favorite RSS subscriptions. The first is Slate Star Codex. This is a guy, he wrote on Less Wrong, which was a site by Eliezer Yudkowsky, who's one of the early AI researchers about applied rationality. How do we think more rationally? I think he's a resident, a psychiatry resident somewhere in the Midwest. He writes it anonymously and writes maybe 50% about kind of like, how do you think better? How do you be more rational? And then 50% maybe commentary on like medical studies. And he'll go back and he'll look at kind of popular medical opinions and he'll actually talk about, well, here's how the P value 
values work and yada yada. The two articles I would start with, the first is No Clarity on Growth Mindset. We actually goes back at the study that Carol Dweck based her work on in Mindset and kind of analyzes those studies and goes, the results here have not been replicated and they're kind of ambiguous. And I kind of think this whole thing is a bit of a PR move, which is a really interesting dissenting opinion. He makes it well. And then he has another article called I Can Tolerate Anything Except the Outgroup, which gets it, you know, talking to Dr. McGregor and the plant-based, this phenomenon that oftentimes the groups that bicker are the ones that are the closest together. The paleo and the vegan people fight each other instead of both just, you know, why don't they both just talk to the McDonald's people? Because either option is clearly better than the McDonald's people, but inevitably it never works that way. You always end up fighting with someone that agrees with 90% of what you say and disagrees with the the small 10% instead of fighting with someone that's on the complete opposite side. That's funny because I follow two cycling blogs that I was going to mention, Red Kite Prayer by Patrick Brady and the Voluminate, the Keepers of the Cog, written by an anonymous man named Frank. (laughs) One of the outgroups of the cycling community is triathletes, who it's hilarious because they actually ride bikes one third of the time. (laughs) No, it's not sedentary Americans or people who drive big trucks. It's triathletes. You know, those are the outgroup. But one of the reasons I wanted to point out the Voluminate is this is a blog that basically just wrote down the zeitgeist that's already in the air. Their fundamental thing was called the rules. They actually defined what it meant to be a proper road cyclist. And they listed the rules and they've built a whole business off of this by this swaggering attitude of defining a subculture. And I think that that's a really cool opportunity for independent writers and bloggers. There's one that I read regularly called Pedestrian Observations. Have you ever read this? I haven't. I think he's like a professor in Europe somewhere, but he knows so much about public transit policy that basically whenever Amtrak announces they're going to build like some new railway, he writes like a 6,000 word post saying why they're total idiots. Like, <laughs> Amazing. And it's like very measured, but it's like, I can't believe this exists. I mean, he's so utterly competent that the people that respond, they're having like a higher level conversation than you'd ever see in public discourse, complete with charts, graphs, like the end point of this railway should be here. They'll never make back their investment on this sort of carriage. You know, it's really intense stuff. That was something that was surprising to me when I started reading blogs was at first you think these people are crazy and fringe and then you realize they can actually say the truth because they don't have any political agenda or it's not, their careers aren't linked to it. They're just talking about stuff that's interesting that they're studying. We'll skip to the next one. What's your next blog? So my other one is Stratechery. It's written by a guy named Ben Thompson. It's S-T-R-A-T-E-C-H-E-R-Y. So like strategy plus tech And... So he is formerly worked at Microsoft, formerly worked at Apple, and also at Automatic, which is Matt Mullenweg's company based on WordPress. He basically moved to Taiwan. His wife is from Taiwan, and they wanted to raise their kids in Taiwan. And so he started this blog because he wanted to be able to make a living from Taiwan, and he couldn't do that working at Apple or Microsoft. And so he has like 20 years of tech experience. And what he's doing is he's basically taking all the tech news and he's like filtering it through these kind of mental models that he's put up around how the tech world works. And I really like it 
for a couple of reasons. One is it's really accessible. I think a lot of like the tech news, like if you haven't read the last five years of tech news, it's kind of hard to jump in the stream, right? They're like when Apple bought yada yada, and it's like, I didn't even know what yada yada was or how it got integrated into Apple. And with his, you can kind of just dive straight in. Like he makes it accessible enough that you can jump in and go. He goes really, really deep into what the implications are, not just for like investors or people looking to buy Apple stock, but just kind of like the common people, like how is it going to affect our lives. And so the two articles I would start with are Dollar Shave Club and this disruption of everything. And his most famous article is one called Aggregation Theory. He talks a lot about the publishing industry, how publishing is changing, what the future of publishing might look like, both for kind of big media sites and independent bloggers and how do bloggers think about publishing differently from say like a Vox or a BuzzFeed that's going for, you know, how can we get 60 million impressions so we can generate higher ad revenues. So two more I'll toss on to the reading list. First is Yomatic by Nate Roberts. I love a good travel blog, Taylor, and Nate spends a lot of his time in former Soviet countries. He also runs tours to Iran. His photography is outstanding. The stories are great. It's a class act travel blog. I recommend that. And also Bryce.VC is one of the founders of Indie.VC. He writes posts on a broad range of things. He's founded an innovative new way to fund startups, but he also is a partner in a traditional startup Silicon Valley investment fund. So it's just interesting to hear the views from not only someone who's sitting on the top, but someone who's trying to disrupt that industry as well. Thinking about making some investments myself. And that model is certainly one that's really jumped out at me as a potential way forward. One thing I wanted to talk to you about before we go, I peeked at your book the other day on Amazon. You got like hundreds of reviews. Well, how long has it been a little more than a year, yeah. A little more than a year. So the book is The End of Jobs. And I'm pretty sure you're not hiring all those people on Upwork to make those reviews. Just the first few hundred. <laughs> How's the process been having the book out a year later? I mean, tell me a little bit about it. So it had, I think, a fairly typical. The first month was by far the biggest month. And then it kind of started to tail off just in terms of sales. And it's got kind of, there's kind of like a baseline every month. If I don't do anything, it'll sell maybe 500 to 1,000 copies. And if I do a bunch of promotion or marketing, that number will go up. But yeah, it's been steady. Like I haven't put a ton of work or time into directly promoting the book, just continuing to build out the site. And there seems to be some natural carryover. How do you decide what to read? I open my Goodreads and I sort from oldest to newest. And then I just scroll down the list. And the first thing that I get excited about is usually what I'll pick up. So Goodreads, that's a platform for book discovery. It's like the social network for books. It's, of course, the least popular social network ever. What it lets you do instead of just like a traditional, I used to just keep it in my Evernote, I kind of a to read list. There's like a few parameters you can sort by. So you can sort by, you know, the date published or how many reviews it has or what the average review rating is. So you can actually search through and once your my reading list has gotten quite long and so it helps me organize it a little bit. Now, a lot of people that have maybe listened to this episode because who knows why they're in a traffic jam without 3G and they couldn't download another podcast. They're probably thinking, where does this guy find all this time to read these books? So how would you answer that? So I want to hear you answer this question too, but my quote unquote secret, also I'm a big Audible fan. So I probably do about half my reading on Audible as well. 
taking the subway, commuting, making dinner, making lunch. And then the other half I probably do usually first thing in the morning or last thing at night. I'll get another hour of reading in when it comes up. But increasingly my answer to this question is like, you know, if you really like something, like you find ways to prioritize it. And I found for reading that tends to be what happens with me. I like it enough that I will just find a way to prioritize it regardless of what else is going on. What about you? Biggest switch has happened for me in the last year in my reading habits is that a lot more of it has been audible focused. So way more than half for me at this point. It's interesting, like the breakdown of what sort of books I want to read with my Kindle and what sort of stuff I want on audible. But with spending a lot of time on my bike, because I've been doing some pretty serious cycling training, I actually do listen to a lot of books on my bike and it's a pretty ideal time to do it. I've always been a big walker too, and I'll often go on a walk specifically just to listen to books, particularly if there's a good one. I remember City of Thieves, I played hooky for a whole day of work just to listen to the book. It was so good. I have a lot of fond memories of that. Like I know the place I was in and where I was walking and what I was listening to. One of the other things that's changed is I've started reading real books again a little bit more. I've been making an effort to pick up books at bookstores and read them. So thank you, Taylor. Let's do it again in six months. Taylor Pearson from taylorpearson.me. I hope you'll come back and join us again. I certainly will. Thanks for listening, everyone. For all the bookworms out there that stuck around with us, Thank you. You can find the links to everything that we've mentioned in this episode at tropicalmba.com slash great books. And if there's a great book or blog that we haven't mentioned that you'd think we'd enjoy, we'd love to hear about it. And at that site, you can leave comments and we read every single one. So thanks for joining us on today's program. Hopefully we'll do this again in about a six month time frame. I think will be good timing for us to come back with these books episodes. I hope you can hear that we really enjoy doing these episodes. And so I hope that you enjoy listening to them. And of course, we'll be back next Thursday morning with another Tropical MBA podcast. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.